is Andy Wakefield and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome to episode 10. Hi, Andy. Hi, Laura. It's great to be back. Absolutely great to be back with you. Thank you again so much for your time and your dedication. We have so much happening in the world right now and certainly on the health freedom front, as well as the oh-so-orchestrated, right-on-cue flu season. I'd love to know the marketing team that came up with flu season. Yes, yes. (laughs) I don't know. It would be interesting to find out, but I guess that there's a season... A flu for all seasons. I think, well, sure, uh, right, and and you know, it's as a person with an MBA and marketing background, you know, I can just see the people sitting around the conference table. This year's flu season brought to you by GlaxoSmithKline. I mean, that's basically what it appears to be each year. And I started tracking this pattern right around 2007 when the swine flu was going to kill us all. It actually was the topic that inspired the beginning of my blog, the mom street journal, you know, I just thought, okay, don't cast your pearls before swine because really what I've learned in, in my studies of natural health is that, you know, one has to really build their, your immune system, that your best bet against any micro, because every year there's another microbe of choice, right? So we've had, we've had swine flu, we've had SARS that was going to take us all out. Then there was the avian flu, and there have been so many winners from the from the past that that end up kind of just being duds. And here we are, right on cue. Now we've got the coronavirus. What's really going on here? What I know about coronaviruses per se could be written on the back of a postage stamp. But I I will share with you one experience. And the numbers are interesting, but difficult to really put a significance on in terms of how many are infected, how many have been exposed, how many will develop disease, how many won't develop disease, what the transmissibility of this infection is. My interest is really where it came from. And you're right. I mean, firstly, we've seen scares time and time and time again, and they've amounted to nothing except for, of course, you know, with the original swine flu epidemic of 76, that was the precursor for the pharmaceutical companies getting indemnity, then the only people who benefited from that epidemic were, of course, the vaccine makers themselves. Mm. And uh, there was no swine flu epidemic. There was a vaccine that was not really tested at all for safety and injured a lot of people, killed many. And it was an absolute disaster. And I, I was actually involved in cutting footage from that issue into the film today. So it's something that is just a, one of a succession of these scares. We saw it with Zika. We saw it with Ebola. Well, Zika was fascinating. But I remember seeing, uh, you know, with Ebola and Zika, the every day it was the front page of the newspaper. Mm. It was on the news everywhere until the government awarded $8 billion to the vaccine manufacturers to make a vaccine, and it disappeared. Mysteriously, it simply disappeared from the front pages and there's never been an issue since. So, so really, the, the the cure for these 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 viruses is money. It sounds like. Yeah, so you give money to the pharmaceutical industry, and you'll they home just and go drive. away. The virus somehow somehow mysteriously disappears. But one thing that is of interest that I can share with you is the experience with SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome, and this emerged from China as well. I don't remember whether you remember this, was back in 2003, and this was a coronavirus. And I just remember at the time I was dealing with a a member of the the British Secret Service who was involved in 
as a hacker. He was uh, he was rather like that character in in Jurassic Park, the the, the big guy who sat at the computer and tried to <laughs> tried to to uh, control the gates and broke everything and and eventually got killed himself by a dinosaur. Mm, so, munched. But anyway, he. <laughs> It was sort of this chap was an uber hacker who who worked with British Secret Service. And he became aware and he informed us of the fact that with that outbreak, there had in fact been a an earthquake that took place in China that destroyed a bioweapons facility. And the story that he told was that the virus escaped from that bioweapons facility and went on to infect people and kill some. Now, will we ever know the truth of that story? He had no reason to tell me a lie, and, mm. but he was warned against disclosing it. But there it was. And, and, and was that a bioweapon that escaped as a consequence of a natural disaster impacting that bioweapons facility? It's an interesting story. And here we now see another coronavirus, a mutant escaping from China. As a bioweapon, it doesn't seem to me terribly effective because if it only kills a small proportion of the people that it infects, and I think the, the number is sort of three to four percent, then that really isn't terribly clever as a bioweapon. Well, and yet here, us, here, but... here, here we have, you know, the, the New York Times is reporting today and yesterday that the NIH, the Vaccine Research Center, the NIH, urged government scientists in China to share the genetic makeup so that his team could begin their race for a vaccine. And on January 10th, the Chinese scientists did exactly that. And the very next morning, now we've got tax dollars at work as this Dr. Barney Graham, who's de deputy director of the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH, now in the lab, and now within hours, they've pinpointed the letters of the genetic code that could be used to make a vaccine. Meanwhile, scientists in Australia, according to the New York Times, and at least three companies, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna Therapeutics, and Innovio Pharmaceuticals, are also working on vaccine candidates to stop the spread of this disease. And we certainly don't want anyone to fall ill or die from any of these microbes. But Innovio received a grant of $9 million to develop a coronavirus vaccine from the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which I've never heard of before, but is evidently a group who is, whose aim is to speed vaccines to market. So you've got all of these resources being rushed, in my opinion, irresponsibly. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned from you is that viruses mutate and they tend to mutate very quickly. So in a sense, the concept of developing a, a, a silver bullet, which is what the vaccine market seems to pretend to be, is really kind of chasing your tail. Yes, I don't know much about the coronavirus and its stability, how quickly it mutates. But I, I mean, all credit to people for seeking to you know, develop ways of protecting mankind from an, uh, an infectious disease. I have no criticism sure. of that. My worry sure. is that inherent, implicit in the term rush to market is to circumvent the necessary safety studies. No good saying that this doesn't happen or that they are safe. I was just watching an extraordinary program about the the swine flu vaccine scam of 1976, and there they the public were told that it was safe. It turns out that it hadn't undergone any field testing mm. at all, which is the reason why the 
the insurers were simply not prepared to underwrite the vaccine and injuries that might have occurred from it. They simply refused. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the industry said, well, if the government wants the vaccine, they should underwrite it. And that was really the precedent for liability protection. There is absolutely no excuse for circumventing safety trials because the results historically have been catastrophic. And there is no reason to suspect that rushing a coronavirus vaccine to market without adequate safety testing is going to fare any better. So I do have concerns about this idea that you can rush these things to market. You might accelerate the development of the product, but that does not obviate the need for rigorous safety testing. And that is what has happened in the past. But safety testing has not been done. And it's the public that has paid the price. And that must not happen again. Mm -hmm. It definitely seems to be the process that is a bit of a concern. And another, uh, I'd love to get your thought on this, because another mention in this New York Times article is that the chief science officer from Johnson & Johnson, Dr. Paul Stoffels, is saying that, and this is a narrative that I don't understand how vaccine manufacturers can push this because this particular point is literally provable with numbers and prov- provable that it's it's a false claim. And that is, Dr. Stoffels is saying you have to be brave and you have to be a solid company to develop these kinds of vaccines because there's no real financial incentive to do this. And, you know, that's a talking point that vaccine makers, and I might add, many doctors seem to be under this spell of this illusion that pharmaceutical companies don't make money from vaccines, that they're kind of public service products that these companies do just for the good of mankind. Really is concerning that is a point that keeps getting pushed because we know that the vaccine market is $50 billion a year, right? And and we also know that the products that treat the side effects of vaccines is $550 billion a year. So what is your thought about that? Yes, yes, it has no basis in reality whatsoever. I mean, you've quoted the numbers for what the market is at the moment, and it's seen as the future of the pharmaceutical industry is the, is the vaccine market. And one only has to go to the Wall Street Journal to find that. So it, it, it yes, it's simply not true. It's a massive market. They make a lot of money out of it. They make a lot of money out of the diseases that they cause as a consequence of their the side effects of their vaccines, including the epidemic of immune, immune-mediated disease, autoimmune diseases that we see throughout the developed world at the moment. So it is a, a huge market to them. The other thing that they do, and they have done many times, is not only to produce the new vaccine, but then push very, very hard for it to be accepted onto the CDC's recommended schedule. And that then takes away liability so they can uh, circumvent future safety trials. They don't have to worry about the market because it's already there. Once it's recommended, then it can be mandated at the state level uh, for school entry, for private and public school entry in, in, in California. And so the market is huge. And it, this happened, this was seen with hepatitis B vaccines. Hepatitis B vaccine was originally intended to be for those who were at high risk, prostitutes, sexually promiscuous, intravenous drug abusers, but they wouldn't take the vaccine. They wouldn't come forward to have it done. So compliance was appalling amongst the target community. Someone from the industry, from Merck, told ASIP, we are not going to be, we are not going to have 
an orphan drug. In other words, we're not going to have a drug which we're not going to make a profit on. And so it's up to you to, to mandate it for everybody. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the industry driving the initiative. It is industry telling ASIP what to do. And Barbara Lowe Fisher was there and reports this very, very accurately. And so ASIP then mandated it for infants, one-day-old infants, mm. extraordinarily low-risk population. An extraordinary um, it, it, irresponsible it, it, move, yeah. not to mention. I mean, how many newborn infants are going to be exposed to hepatitis B, which is from shared needles and unprotected exposure from yeah. and, and an infected individual? To, to, to accommodate the industry. This move mm -hmm. was made to accommodate the industry so that they would not have an unprofitable orphan drug and mm -hmm. had nothing whatsoever to do with protection of children against hepatitis B virus. So it, it, it really is complete bunkum, and I think we can just leave that right there. I agree. And, you know, I, I would like to make two quick points here before we sign off, and that is, number one, you are often accused of being anti-vaccine. And we know, well, those of us who know your work know that that is not the case. So I just want to give you an opportunity to address that. And then the second point I would like to mention is the film that you just referred to that you're working on is not Vaxxed 2. Vaxxed 2 is a wonderful film that was done by Brian Burroughs and Polly Tommy and others and is available in, in limited uh, distribution right now in theaters and is starting to expand into other countries. So we're happy to see that. We cheered them along the way for their success and for their wonderful film, which is helping to educate people on the reality of vaccine injury. However, it is not the film you're referring to. Tell us a little bit about that film and then tell us why you're not anti-vaccine. Well, firstly, yes, let me start with the, the, the former. I am pro. I'm pro-safety. I'm pro-vaccine safety. I'm pro-protection of children. I'm pro-science. I'm pro-improving pro the health of uh, people of this world, particularly children and um that doesn't make me anti anything. And in the context of a new coronavirus vaccine, if this is a genuine threat to the populace, then um, it's commendable that people are pushing forward to produce a vaccine that will help people. It has to be, however, that that vaccine is safe, is adequately tested, and that the benefits far, far outweigh the risks, the proven risks, and that it is entirely voluntary and based on fully informed consent of those individuals receiving the vaccine or those or their parents. And um, it cannot be coerced. It cannot be forced. There cannot be deception or lies in the marketing of this product or the informed consent given to parents. It has to be entirely voluntary. And that's what I stand for. Now, the other thing is the film. Well, the film is... Uh, goes right to the heart of this very issue and is about the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And it is about the history of the act, the enactment of it, and the consequences intended and unintended. It's a story of lies, corruption, of deceit at every level of government uh, and industry. It is an astonishing story that uh, amazed even me <laughs> as I got mm. further and further into it with particularly discovery documents from legal cases that never saw the light of day. Um, that were settled on the court steps that were circumvented ultimately by the passage of the 
of the act that indemnified the pharmaceutical industry. What's astonishing to so many Americans, politicians included, is that there is this indemnity of the pharmaceutical industry, that it exists in a free market economy. You have mm. a company making faulty products, dangerous products, which are exempt from a financial liability for the damage done, and that there is a mandatory market, a perfect business model. They cannot fail. All they can do is make a profit, and they have done that par excellence. So it's it sta is standing really outside the free market is 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 really it's carte blanche, right? The free market, the economic free market is really the place where products fail or succeed based on the quality of the product and their ability to deliver what they say they're going to deliver. And outside of that, you're really writing a blank check. Yeah. And quite apart from all of the personal suffering, the um, damage being done, then this is bad business for America. It is bad business. You cannot have a free market economy where something like vaccines are allowed to go rogue. Uh, the companies have gone rogue and they are exempt from the normal rules of, of the marketplace. And once you do that, then you have a massive problem. And right now we have a massive problem. So it takes, you know, for the government, if they understand nothing else, about this, then they must understand the business consequences for the American economy, not least of which is going to be coping financially with the damage done to so many people. This is such an important film because most Americans do not know that vaccine makers are immune from prosecution. Tell us when we can see this film. Well, uh, with the following wind, we will have this film ready in mid-April, then it'll go out on a theatrical release followed by international online release on Sphere, S-P-H-I-R dot I-O. Please sign up now. Sign up to Sphere because that is the future platform for uncensored broadcasting. Films like this that really cut to the core of issues that some people, for commercial reasons, for personal reasons, for vested interest reasons, do not want to be seen on uh, existing platforms. So go to somewhere that cannot and will not be censored. And that is sphere.io. Sign up now and the film will be there in April. It really is a wonderful platform that's emerging that will support free speech, but will have guidelines for respect and communication. Uh, and we will have a film up prior to that called Who Killed Alex Sportolakis, which is a really important film. So absolutely go there and stay tuned. Andy, it's such a pleasure. Pleasure to be back. Thanks so much, Laurie. Thank you. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a Seventh Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act, and soon on Sphere.